Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. Good to be with you guys. It's a good day. Dodgers won. Yes. And, uh... And the USC one as well. So I'm happy. Yeah, some people are like, what are you talking about? Uh, anyway, it's good to be with you. Uh, it's a good Sunday. We're excited. Fall feels like it's here. Although wait till next week, it'll be like 90. Um, hey, welcome. If it's your first time, uh, Vox is a unique uh, community where we gather together and uh, we have some values about why and how we gather. Um, and one of those things is questions. So uh, I think that we all collectively think that in any faith journey, uh, it's reasonable to believe that people would have uh, doubts and questions and be a little bit skeptical. Uh, if anybody's going to honestly arrive somewhere, then you're gonna have that journey. And so we wanna be a place that's safe to, to allow space to do that. And we, we, one of the ways that we do that is we take questions. We allow people to ask questions throughout the service while I'm teaching or during worship or whatever. If you have questions, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm curious about this, then ask it. And we do our best to try to answer that. And so um, last week we had a question that came up and we answered it, but it wasn't quite answered the way I think the person originally intended it. And so somebody stepped in and said, hey, I think this is what they're asking. So with that in mind, before I begin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into this question and then we'll start. So let's see the question. Okay. So it said, I think the infallible question uh, they were asking, is the Bible infallible or inerrant, meaning without error? Um, and I didn't ask it. It was more geared toward asking if the Bible could contain technical errors due to human errors, such as dates, times, locations. An infallible scripture means that every single thing in the Bible is true. What Will was describing is that the Bible is the authoritative truth. The story of the resurrection, the redemption of fallen man is true and was developed over thousands of years. This makes it true and authoritative, but not necessarily inherent or infallible. Uh, or inerrant or infallible is what they meant, not inherent. Uh, I think that's closer to what the person was asking. So they know how to answer questions. Uh, so they know how to answer questions about the thing, the flood covered the whole earth. Maybe it wasn't uh, literally the whole earth, but the whole earth as the author of Genesis understood it. Good question. Good, good question. And I said this before. I, I mean, these questions are better than some seminary students. I, I got to be honest. Um, it's a good question. Um, so let me just start by saying this. Um, as a staff and, and as a community, I think it's healthy that we all don't agree on the same things. Uh, we never want to become sort of confirmationally biased and just become a group think place where we all think the same and perpetuate the same ideas. Um, and as you study the scriptures and as you look at deeper issues, what you'll realize is that on any given topic, there are a split number of great, brilliant, Jesus-loving theologians who think differently about it. So I'm gonna say something and I'm gonna answer this question based on my own observations, my own understanding, and it may be different than somebody else who's much smarter and brighter than me. Uh, and that's okay. I think we're at a place where we embrace the mystery, that there's a mystery in all of this. And so we're okay with that. We wanna be able to hold those things kind of loosely. And so I'm gonna say that, that I'm gonna give you my answer. It's not the answer. There's lots of different ways to think about it. So. The first thing I want to say about this, about the inerrancy thing, uh, inerrancy as a category for scripture is fairly recent. Um, it wasn't until some of the Dutch Germanic philosophical ways of thinking entered into the discussion of theology where inerrancy became a thing. Now, when I say the word inerrancy, I mean without errors. Um, and I think some of this stemmed from a need to be right. 
a need to be correct in our thinking. Uh, Westernized culture has adopted that, and I think what we see in our culture today, and you'll probably agree with me, is that Westernized culture has a deep, deep desire to constantly be right about things, right? We have to have the right answers. We have to be correct. It has to be this. Or for some reason, if it's not, then it's an invalid, right? And we know that that argument doesn't hold up. That's not actually true. Something doesn't have to be completely true for it to be all, for there to be truth in it. Um, I'll say this. I think inerrancy as a category is not the correct category to put on scripture. It's like trying to say that uh, a banana tastes like blue, it just doesn't work. It's not, it's not a category that scripture was ever trying to achieve. And so I think if we're able to take our minds and not make scripture be this thing, it speaks higher volumes to our life. Uh, this is an ancient text written in a very specific time in a very specific place with real people and real issues happening in real time. And as they're writing these things and as they're reflecting on these things, they're working off the understanding that they have in that culture and in that period. It's very important that we understand these things because if we don't, we can misappropriate, we can misuse some of those texts in ways that are hurtful and damaging to people as we have seen, right? Uh, So it's important to understand that. Now, um, again, I don't think this is a good category for the scriptures because I don't think that's what the intention was. For instance, let's look at Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, right? There will be some people in our tradition who will look at the Genesis story and say it as literal, that this is a literal six days that the earth was created and it's only 5,000 years old because that's what we can date back to. Okay, without getting into arguments about evolution and all that sort of stuff, the, the genre of literature that Genesis is is poetic, And so the Hebrew people, these ancient people understood poetry when they wrote it. There was a way of making meaning out of something that they couldn't quite explain. And creation stories had been around for thousands of years before they even penned their own creation story. Story from the Babylonians about creation, Marduk, right? And Tiamat and how creation started when Marduk the god ripped open Tiamat and created, you know, the earth. And so out of violence is this this beginning story. And so this is a a common creation narrative in the time. And so how interesting that when the the, the writers of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Mark, the first five books of the Bible, sorry, I got crazy. Um, How interesting is it that their creation story is one of a God who's love and looks down on his creation and said it's good and it's not from violence, but from a deep place of love. You see how there's this contrasting narrative to what's happening in the scriptures. The other thing is that when the writers were penning this, they didn't have the understanding of science the way that we understand science today, right? So it's easy for us to go, hey, this isn't factual, we can look at science. Yeah, the writers at that time did not understand science. The scientific method is fairly recent. It's not something they understood when they were looking around. They weren't trying to to get every single detail down. They were trying to express something much deeper about the character and the nature of God. And that's why poetry is so important. That's why art is so important. That's why music is so important. Because if you've ever been and seen art, it expresses something about the human condition, about us that we can't even express with our own words, right? And so this is the beauty of scripture because it's full of this type of literature. And so I think understanding that um, it's not meant to be inerrant, it wasn't ever put up in that place, will help us relinquish this need for it to be right 
and understand that it has far deeper um, implications in our life when we put it in its proper perspective. That being said, we do know that there are errors. There are errors in it, and, it and, and the errors in it are not something to be afraid of. In fact, when you look at it, there are some numbers, there are some different things here and there that contradict, and that's okay. When you look at the totality of, of Scripture, something like 98%, 99% of it is all in line and all makes sense and all points to one thing. So there are some errors that are minuscule that really don't don't take away from any doctrinal thinking, okay? So there's nothing to be afraid of when people go, well, the Bible has errors. You're right. Like, there are some things. Another, a perfect example of this, and I'm kind of getting off the train here, but Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, right? And if you're an inerrantist, what do you do with that? Because science has told us that's not true. But the easy explanation is to step out of that inerrancy mindset and go, well, Jesus was clearly speaking in hyperbole, Right? He's trying to get a point across. He's saying that look at this small seed and look at how it goes all over the place and how it's this, from this little tiny thing, it can be so pervasive. But see, if we hold it in this inerrancy, it has to be accurate. Now we're having to play mental gymnastics to try to figure out how to make it work, right? As opposed to stepping back and holding the beauty of the text. So uh, I think I answered the question most of it. So I've never gotten an applause for answering a question. Fascinating. Um, well, thank you for that. And like I said, I, I don't pretend to have the answer. There's lots of different answers, and there could be people in this room who would look at me and go, you're flat out wrong, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree, and we can hold each other's um, ways of thinking in a way that's healthy, right? Okay. All right, so uh, we're, gonna, we're in Acts right now. We've been through, uh, as, a, as a community, been looking at the book of Acts because um, as a community, this is our heritage. This is our living heritage, the, the, the tradition that we embrace as Christianity. Some of us in this room embraces Christianity comes from this. It comes from this marginalized sect of Messianic Jews who in the first century believed in Jesus. And from that small group, we have what we have today. Now it's changed and there's some variations of it, but in order to understand where we're headed, it's important to know where we came from and know our, our heritage. That's why we decided to look at Acts and take a deeper uh, interest in it. So uh, we're in Acts 10 today, Acts 10 and 11. I won't get to 11 because we don't have enough time, but we're gonna start in Genesis chapter 17. I know that's weird because we're in Acts, but I'm gonna start in Genesis 17 because I think it's important to see the overarching theme of, of, of scripture. So this is in Genesis 17, verse one. God is speaking to a man named Abram. Um, and this is sort of where it all begins. This is where it all begins in our story, in our heritage. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. Now, a covenant is a big word. Essentially, it's an agreement that God makes with them. This is not something new to their culture. Lots of covenants happened um, between lots of different nations, okay, and then they're, and they're God. So this isn't a new concept. Um, and verse three, at this, Abram fell face down on the ground, and then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. Just hold on to that. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. Now, 
As you're asking yourself, why are you reading Genesis? I think it's important because there's a totality in scripture. Again, stepping away from the inerrancy thing, you see that there's this narrative that moves all through the entire scripture. And there's this moment in Acts 10 where this actually culminates, where we see this God-given promise come to fruition in Acts chapter 10. And it's important to understand that because God has reached in to human history and stepped in to change the way that people understood how God works. I think the problem sometimes is that we see the Old Testament and the New Testament as too separate, and we don't see their interconnectedness and how interwoven they are. And so understanding the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament more. In fact, when you understand that the Old Testament never stopped when Matthew started writing his gospel, that the people lived under first century uh, understanding and Jewish rituals and, and, and religion. And so this is the, our heritage. This is, our, this is the beginning. This is where it started for us. And so uh, Luke begins to tell this story. And, and we talked about this in the previous weeks that um, you'll see the way that he writes the story the different lives of the people, these, these vignettes, when you look at Saul's life, uh, and Paul later, you look at Peter's life, you look at Stephen's life. When people are faithful to Jesus, their lives reflect and mimic his life. That there is persecution, there's suffering, that there's a death, burial, and a resurrection. And we see that, that a new life comes from death. And this is what Luke is trying to get across when he's, when he's, he's writing his narrative. And so he's showing the subversive way in which God comes into our world to introduce a new and true kingdom. Remember from our last week, if you were here with us, Jesus had talked about a new kingdom, but kingdoms in this time meant that the way that you set up a new kingdom was through power, through warfare, through authority, right? Through borders and tribalism. And then when Jesus steps in, he talks about God's kingdom, which is so subversive, which is one of love and compassion and mercy and, and, and intersecting uh, and, and moving through the div- div- divisiveness and uniting. This is the kingdom that Jesus ushers in. And Luke continues to tell the story over and over and over again because good authors, when they're trying to get their point across, they repeat things over and over and over. So Acts 10, verse one. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor, and he prayed regularly to God. Now, we need to stop here for a second, because you have to see the audaciousness with which Luke is writing. He's got a primary, primarily Jewish audience, and in his story, he introduces this monumental moment through the eyes and lens of a Roman soldier. Remember, they are an oppressed people by the Roman culture. And here he's using a Roman soldier, not just any Roman soldier, the head of a bunch of other Roman soldiers. And he actually says that this guy's a God-fearing, devout man, which means that while he's not Jewish technically, he believes in the God that they believe, Elohim, Yahweh. He believes in this God, and he's got his whole entire household following this same God. This is this is a remarkable fact about Luke's narratives. So if you read Luke and you read Acts, what does Luke do constantly throughout his narrative? He uses the most unlikely marginalized people to tell the story. So the first person to ever see Jesus is who? A woman, which in a time and a culture when women would never be considered as an eyewitness testimony, he uses that. He says, no, no, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It comes in a way that you would not expect it. 
to the marginalized, to the poor, to the outcast. He's constantly talking about it. So now he introduces this story, a very monumental key moment in the story of our heritage. He talks about a Roman soldier named Cornelius. And he's showing us that God is doing something in the world that breaks past their understanding of how God works. So if you were in first century and you were reading this story that Luke was writing, your ears would immediately perk up. A Roman soldier, it'd be like if somebody was telling you a story about an ISIS person who was loving and caring for the poor and the weak. Like in your mind, you'd be like, wait, that's so weird. Wait, what? That's counterintuitive to what I understand because he's trying to get your attention. He's trying to pull you into the story and showing you what God is like. He sends messengers, God sends messengers, or uh, Cornelius sends messengers to Peter because that's what you do when an angel visits you, right? An angel of the Lord came to Cornelius at his house and said, go and send these messengers to Peter and bring Peter back to you. And so Cornelius goes, okay. So he sends these two guys to Peter. And so meanwhile, Peter is on the roof having this crazy hunger vision dream thing, right? Like he's on, a, on his roof at like noon and it's pretty typical for people in this time to have like a midday snack. And so he's up on his roof and he's, he's probably getting ready to eat and he's hungry. And all of a sudden it says he goes into a trance that a vision happens to him. And in this vision, we see something interesting. So it says this in Acts 10 verse 11. Mind you, Peter is still abiding by all Jewish purity laws and food restrictions and dietary restrictions. So he's not eating pork. Um, he's, he's abiding by Sabbath. He's abiding by all the rules and rituals that they would normally do. And in Acts 10, it says this in verse 11. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times and then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Okay, imagine for a second, if you will, you've lived your entire life your family, your mother, your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-grandfathers have lived their entire lives under this, uh, this assumption about the way in which God works. The nature of your relationship with God was under this thing. And so you had dietary restrictions. There's a whole book called Leviticus that talks about how they're to live their lives. This whole thing, you've lived your life this one way, and then all of a sudden, God comes to you in a vision and goes, now nah, don't do that. Imagine what kind of earth-shattering moment that is for you, right? This is, this is a deconstruction. And if any of you have ever gone through a deconstruction of your faith or your life or your marriage or a relationship, you understand how earth-shattering that is, right? It's scary. That's why we want to create a space in here that, that allows people the room to doubt and have questions and wonder and go, I don't know, because it's a scary thing to step into that and people in de- deconstruction need permission that it's okay. And so here is, here's Peter and he has this vision and, and God says, no, all that stuff about the dietary restrictions that you've been doing, no, 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 stop doing that. And Peter's like so confused. What do you mean? My whole life has been aimed and lived around these things. And it's true though, right? When, when we go through a deconstruction in our life, it flips our world upside down and it causes us to ask some questions about the things that we've done. 
If you've been with us at Vox for a while, you know that that's how we, we, we think, right? Like we're deconstructing and it's scary for some people to come into this place because we do things a little bit different and it's not what you're used to. And, and so how do we handle that? Well, God is helping shape and bring something new into the world through Peter. And this is the monumental moment in Acts 10 because Peter has this vision. God says all that stuff, don't do that. And then he brings these guards to Peter. And Peter invites these Gentile people into his house, which is another big no-no, right? In the story, if you read Acts, they come to his house and they say they have a vision uh, and God told them to come get you and bring you back to this Roman centurion Cornelius' house. And it's late at night, so Peter says, well, come inside and stay with me, which is another huge no-no. Like, what's happening here? Bridges are being crossed. Remember, a new kingdom has been inaugurated. A kingdom that does away with borders, a kingdom that does away with divisiveness, a kingdom that does away with tribalism and says, no, let's bring this together. And so Peter invites him into his house, they stay the night and then they go to the Roman centurion's house. And something crazy happens because he walks in the house and he sees this man, this Roman centurion who is following God, the God of Israel. And he has this entire household who's doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden, Peter, it's not ready to bridge this gap. He's almost hesitant. You see in the vision when, when God says he brings the sheet down and there's all the different animals, he goes, go and kill and eat and Peter rejects it and goes, no, 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 I've never done that. I will not do that. It's almost like he thinks he's being like indicted. No, 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 I'm not, I've never done that. I've never broken anything. No, I, I'm sticking to my guns. And then it's interesting. This is a little tidbit. This is a little, little like Easter egg for, for those who were like into literary stuff. Uh, it says that the vision happened three times to Peter. Do you know what else happened three times to Peter? Right, he, he denied Jesus three times. Then when Jesus brought him on the beach, he professed and confessed three times. And then the vision happens to Peter three times. See, good authors leave their mark, right? They tell the story and see, this is what it takes for Peter. And Peter finally understands what's happening. So Peter goes back to Cornelius' house. And then in verse 28 through 29 says this, Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter into a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. You know, when you get invited to somebody's house for the first time, I digress. <clears throat> but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objections as soon as I was sent for. This is a huge statement. And everything that has happened thus far in all of scripture, this is a huge statement. Because look what he says. He's not just talking about food anymore. Very, very carefully, look at the words that Luke uses. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. You see, this is bringing Genesis chapter 17, God's covenant with Abraham into full culmination here in this moment. Remember, you would be the father of all nations, not just one nation, all nations, many nations. All peoples would come together. There's this unification. There's this bringing things back together. Do you remember in the story in Acts when they were speaking in tongues in different languages and all of them understood, right? That's a play on the Tower of Babel. Do you remember in the Tower of Babel story when people were trying to achieve God and then God scattered them and gave them languages that they couldn't understand? So there was this scattering and then Acts is all of a sudden now this coming back together of people understanding each other. Do you see what the writer is trying to explain to us? That God is doing something new that God is bridging the gaps 
that he's bringing unification, that he's reconciling, that he's redeeming, and he's pulling people together. And when Peter goes to this Roman centurion, this Gentile believer, and says, you are no longer unclean. There is no more division that we are together. We are in this. This should bring about huge questions from the first century readers, and it should bring about huge questions from us today. Because when I think about our tradition, our Christian tradition, I have to ask myself, are we reconcilers? Are we bridge builders? Are we peacemakers? Because you can see the fractured society and culture we live in, right? You can see that civil discourse has eroded. You can see that compassion and empathy for humankind has deteriorated. You can see that people are highly politicized, that we're divided based on what we um, pledge to in our political understanding and partisanship. And you remember Jesus ushered in a new kingdom, a kingdom that was subversive, a kingdom that did away with tribalism, a kingdom that said, no, this was about us, not us versus them, but we. We are together in this. When we see partisanship, political partisanship, taking the place of human flourishing, we've got a problem. We've got a problem. One author said, maybe it's hard for us to understand this first century kingdom of Jesus that he ushered in because today in America, we are Rome. We are the power. We are the authority that rules with with might and power and authority and tribalism and ethnocentrism. And this, this narrative, this powerful Jesus story, this Jesus movement comes in the midst of that kingdom and flips it upside down says, no, it's about empathy. It's about compassion for each other. To look at your neighbor, to look at somebody who's unlike you and find common ground. I debated on whether or not I should talk about this today, but I think it's important. One of the things that we've seen is an erosion of empathy. Empathy, just just the basic ability to understand somebody else's situation, position, or where they're coming from. And in the midst of our culture, we've had a whole group of people, women, who've been coming out of the woodworks and talking about the abuses that they've undergone, the way they've been mistreated, the way they've been brushed aside and manipulated. And it seems that when these women finally work up the courage to actually say something in the midst of our culture now, there are some people who would doubt and who would look at them and just say, oh, you're just trying to get attention. Oh, you just have an agenda. And I gotta say, that lacks so much empathy. Just, Just empathy. I'm not saying you have to agree. I'm just saying, just the ability to look at another, another human being and go, what must it be like to have to endure something like that? I know this. I know that people who undergo um, sexual abuse feel tremendous guilt and shame as victims. 
as victims, tremendous guilt and shame. So think about this. If you've ever lived with guilt and shame in your own life, how hard has it been for you to step out of that darkness and tell other people about it? Very hard, very difficult. And it brings a lot of emotion and pain and people continue to bury it and deeper and deeper. And so when, when a person is willing to step out publicly about guilt and shame and pain that they've had and experienced, statistics show us that 98% of women who've been sexually abused are telling the truth, 98%. The vast majority is true. That aside, when will we look at each other and see each other as we? That the same blood that courses through your veins, the same pain that you've endured, the same struggles that you're going through are the same struggles that I go through that I might experience. And again, this isn't, you don't have to like have lived that experience. You don't have to do that thing or have been experienced that thing, but you can have empathy. You can have compassion. You can have love and look at your neighbor and go, I wanna understand. I wanna sit with you in this. Show me more. Show me what I don't know. You see that, that folks right there, this is the kingdom when Jesus said the kingdom of God was at hand, the kingdom of God was here, that it, no, there was no more division, there was no more us versus them, that there's no unclean or clean, it's all together in this. The dividing lines, the tribalism, all of that's gone. We're in this together. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom at hand. And so people go, what does it look like to witness? It looks like be someone who's a peacemaker. Step into spaces that are difficult and hard for you to understand and learn to try to have compassion and empathy. Find someone who's struggling and going through the midst of some deconstruction or pain or hurt and just be with them. That brings the kingdom of God to that very place. You see, you don't have to go knocking on people's doors to evangelize, I know that's what we thought, right? That's the way evangelicalism has taught how you, how you evangelize, how you witness to people. Ah, uh, I don't know. I look at the story and I go, no, he's, he's bridging gaps. He doesn't see it us versus them. It's we together. And when we can show compassion and love and care and mercy, that's the kingdom. It brings God incarnate here in this place. So what do we do? Where do we move from this? Where does our tradition have to start taking some hard looks inside? Because here's the crazy thing. It's not even just outside the world that sometimes the church goes us versus them. It's inside the church. Like different denominations and stuff. People, it's like, no, nah, nah, no, it's us versus them. We gotta, we're, we're right, they're wrong. We gotta, it's like, whoa, hold on a second here. Let's step back from that, this, you know, these, these tribes, this, my circle. Let's see everything as we. We are in this together. We are trying to find our way. And if we're trying to find our way and we're on this adventure and we're in this journey, we can be more kind. We can be more compassionate. We can be more empathetic. We can find time and space to help people walk through questions and doubt and hurt and pain because that is the greatest witness of the kingdom of God at hand. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for preserving the stories. Thank you for 
Um, allowing us to see your heart through your people. Uh, we get it wrong so often. I get it wrong so often. Um, and we make a mess of things. And yet in the midst of us making a huge mess, a colossal mess, somehow you shine. Somehow your, your character, your great love and compassion and joy create healing and purpose for people. So Lord, help us. Help us to look inward at those places where we've drawn boundaries and borders and considered things clean or impure. Help us to tear down those walls. Help us to look across the aisle and across our seats and other people and see that as us, as we, my brother, my sister. No matter what we believe, no matter where we've come from, help us to see that we are united in this and that you call us to that. God, give us the strength to be gracious and kind to others and those who are not like us because that is what you commanded us to. So we're grateful for this space. We're grateful for this community. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so um, the band's gonna come out and they are going to play a few songs um, to sort of wrap up and close our time. But as we close this time, the culminating moment for us at Vox is really about the communion table. Um, I don't know what you've heard about communion. I don't know what you've been, what your experience has been. Maybe um, you had to go through classes in order to be able to take communion, or maybe you thought, well, I'm not a believer, so I can't. Um, here at Vox, we believe in an open communion. We believe in an open table, a table in which Jesus invites all people to come and partake. That um, you don't have to come, you don't have to do anything to deserve it. In fact, it's a gift freely given to you. And as you partake in that, you are um, you are entering into this kingdom that Jesus has set up. And so we want to invite you to that. Uh, so at this time, as the band plays, there's going to be um, some community pastors who will be there to be able to serve communion for you if you want to take gluten free. That's over on this side. Um, we also have prayer walls too that I want to make sure everyone knows that you know we come into this space and we know that people carry lots of hurt and pain, and part of that is us being. Able able to be a place for people to walk in that in safety. And so we have community pastors who will be up front who would love to pray with you and talk with you. And so as the band plays, this will be your time to move to the stations and, uh, and go as you feel led. Wow. Wowza. Thank you guys. It was awesome. Love that. So great. Uh, this is my son, Dallas. He really wanted to come out here because he loves the drums and he just wanted to stare at the drummer the whole time. Uh, hey, thanks for giving us the space and the opportunity to share and talk about Jesus. Um, thank you for choosing to come and be with us. And I just wanna say that um, what we do is not possible without the generosity of the people who, um, who give to this community, not just in money, but also time. Uh, the people who serve on our teams to set everything up to make sure that you come to a space that's safe to be able to do what we do. Um, and thank you for those who give financially to do what we do, because this does place doesn't happen without those donations. And so I want to invite you into that if you want to do that. If you believe in what's happening here, um, we have giving boxes outside, but you can also go online at voxoc.com donate, and then you can give there as well. Um, on behalf of the team, we thank you. Um, our kids thank you for serving and being a part of this community. So we love you guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.